like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 14 verses of Romans 6. We're going to focus on verses 5 through 11, but to set the context, I'm going to read those other verses as well. Paul had uh, said at the end of chapter 5 that sin increased, that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, and that naturally raised a question that he poses at the beginning of chapter 6 when he writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And his short answer was by no means or certainly not. And then he gives a longer answer, and that's verses 2b through verse 14. And we began to look at that longer answer last week. We're going to continue to look at it this week. Uh, but to set the context, let me begin with the very beginning of the chapter. So if you have your copy of God's Word open, would you follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 14? And by the way, if you've got something to mark your Bibles at Philippians chapter 3, that would be a good idea because we're going to go there fairly quick. So Romans 6 and then in about five minutes or so, Philippians 3. Romans 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For we, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." Well, I, I trust that we can see the importance of what Paul is dealing with here in this chapter. Antinomianism was the libelous charge against the apostolic gospel that was being leveled both outside of the church and even in the days of the apostles was being leveled on the inside of the church by some. We've considered how Paul deals with that charge from the Jewish synagogue that this Christian gospel of free grace promotes a libertine, a, a licentious, 
uh, a lawless lifestyle. Paul addressed that back in chapter 3, verse 8. But it's not just from outside of the church that these charges have come. In the history of the church, these charges have sometimes come from within the church. And even in the days of the Apostle Paul, it would come from inside the church. Think about the letter of the Galatians. The Judaizers had come into that church with their legalistic perversion of the gospel. And they had charged Paul and his preaching of free grace with antinomianism. And so this has been the problem in the long history of the church, legalism in every generation, has made the false charge that the gospel promotes licentious living. Now, admittedly, the matter is further complicated by the fact that throughout history, there has always been counterfeit Christians who have lived antinomian lives, who have lived libertine lives, lawless lives, and yet they claimed uh, grace as justifying the way that they lived. Uh, they had a perverted view of God's grace, and these antinomians have been around just as long as the legalists have. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you'll discover that uh, the, the Apostle Paul himself has to deal with that problem within uh, the churches that uh, he has founded. Uh, I asked you earlier to mark your Bibles at... at um, Philippians chapter 3, and I want to turn there now, and before we look at some of these verses in Philippians 3, I want to remind you that Paul himself was no antinomian. In fact, his argument in Romans 6 is no true Christian is ever an antinomian because union with Christ, vital, life-giving union with Christ, uh, makes it impossible for a true Christian to live as an antinomian. Now, Paul very carefully distinguishes in Romans 3 the doctrine of justification from sanctification. We dare not mix these things together like the Roman Catholic Church does. If you merge those things together, you end up with a false gospel. And Paul is very careful to keep these things distinct, but he's also careful uh, not to separate them from one, from one another. While they're distinct, they're inseparable. Where you find the one, you will inevitably find the other. Now, in Philippians 3, uh, he deals with the Judaizing threat or the legalistic threat at the beginning of the chapter, but he'll talk about the Arminians as we go along in this chapter. But up front, he makes it clear that as a Christian, Unlike when he was Rabbi Saul of Tarsus, he has renounced all his, his merit badges that he once thought gave him a leg up with God. All of his uh, ethnic connections as a Jew, all of his performance-based merit badges that he once wore with pride, uh, he's thrown them in the trash now that he's a Christian. Uh, he talks about those merit badges in verses 4 through 6, and then he says this to the Philippians. Look at verse 7 through 9 with me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, he's talking here about the great blessing of justification. Justification is something external to us. It's something that's instantaneous. It's forensic. We are taken, as it were, into God's courtroom, and he pronounces his verdict. He pronounces us as believers now in Christ, as right before the law and just before God. And in justification, God does two things for us. Uh, Double imputation, the sins that we have committed, all of them imputed to Christ, put to his tab. He paid them in full at the cross, and the righteousness of Christ imputed to our formerly bankrupt ledger, or to use the clothing metaphor of Jesus. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That happens in justification. Now, sanctification is distinct from justification. It's not instantaneous. It's a process, and it's experiential, and it's a work of the Spirit in conjunction with the means of grace to impart righteousness into the heart and lives of God's people to progressively conform them to the image of Christ. These things have to be kept distinct. We dare not merge them together or we end up with a false gospel like Rome has come up with. But while we have to distinguish these things, these things must never be separated. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. In other words, everyone who has been truly justified will be inevitably sanctified experience the reality of sanctification because there is a vital union with Jesus Christ and there's the indwelling of the Spirit. It is impossible for a true Christian to live as an antinomian. What is an antinomian who claims to be a Christian? Well, he's a hypocrite. That's what he is. He's not a Christian. A true Christian has a sin problem, to be sure, but they're not antinomian. More on that sin problem in a little bit. Now, I want you to notice that Paul goes on to talk about sanctification in Philippians 3. I continue the quote which reveals that Paul's faith in Christ was no dead faith, but the real and living faith of someone regenerated by the Spirit and in vital union with Christ. Look at verses 10 through 14. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then, if you'll skip to verses 17 through 19, where Paul is clearly separating true brethren from false brethren, false brethren having no sanctification grace at all in their lives. Look at verses 17 through 19. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, 
walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now these are the antinomians in the church who have perverted the gospel and turned it into a license to sin. They, they sing the antinomian hymn, free from the law, oh blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. But the problem is that they, unlike true Christians, have no true citizenship in heaven. Jesus is not their Lord. He's not their king. And if Jesus isn't your Lord, he's not your savior either. Paul goes on to distinguish the true from the false. The true Christian has Christ as a king and citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. This is what he goes on to say in verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, it's not just Paul that deals with the antinomian threat in the New Testament. It's rather pervasive in how it's dealt with. Uh, For example, James deals with it in James 2, and he says that um, true faith is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. A person that has a dead faith is in no better shape than a demon. That's what James teaches. Or you think about 1 John. John is writing uh, 1 John because of the Gnostic uh, influence, the Gnostic and antinomian influence in the churches of Asia Minor and they have imbibed a, um, a Gnosticism. Uh, uh, they have imbibed uh, a Greek philosophy that uh, teaches that matter is evil and that really what matters is the soul. And so if you want to go into the red light district and, and have some fun time, well, by means, do it because it doesn't touch your soul. And so John is writing First John to deal with that kind of heresy, that kind of wickedness. Or you think about... Peter and uh, his dealing with the antinomian perversion that is going on in places of, that w- would be in modern-day Turkey. I'm not remembering the exact locations in the Bible times, but you can look on your own. Uh, Peter is writing to churches that are experiencing the influence of antinomian thought, and he is showing that antinomianism and Christianity are two very different things. Or think about Jude. He does the same thing in that postcard epistle. Or think about Jesus, who told us that it would be an ongoing perennial problem throughout the long history of the church. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, and this is the day of judgment now, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Depart from me, you antinomians. Now, in the long-running history of the church, antinomianism has frequently 
raised its ugly head, including in our day. Uh, if you've paid any attention to the George Barna polls, you know that it's rather discouraging. We live in a country where the vast majority of the American people self-identify as Christian. And yet how few live lives that reflect what we could call the biblical ethic. It's not uncommon in our day for someone to claim to be a Christian and yet live together outside of wedlock. That's becoming increasingly common. So what Paul is, is teaching in Romans 6 is of vital importance to our thinking and well-being, and it's of vital importance in terms of the local church and how we do church. Now, this week we turn to Paul's development and application of what we considered last time, and he laid it out for us last week when we considered verses 1 through 4. We considered what he meant by that language of, the believer having died to sin, and then why he invoked the memory of our baptism and what it symbolizes in verses 3 and 4. And I'm not going to rehearse that for you now. I'm just going to build on, on what Paul has already said, and he expands upon that in verses 5 through 10, and then applies it to us in verses 11 through 14. And I don't have enough runway today to look at all of those verses. So what we're going to do today is consider first the facts that serve as the basis for Christian sanctification, that's verses 5 through 10, and then the facts applied to the Christian life, that's verses 11 through 14, but I'm only going to have time to briefly consider with you verse 11. So let's begin with the facts that serve as the basis for Christian sanctification, verses 5 through 10. And I, I want to give you a brief overview of the passage and then look at the particulars. Verse 5 gives us two truths connected to union with Christ that Paul is going to flesh out in verses 6 through 10. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Douglas Moo, on the two big ideas communicated in verse 5, writes, verse 5 states what Paul has implied in verse 4. Believers not only participate in Christ's death so that we have died to sin, but also in his resurrection so that we can live a new life. Now, these two ideas of dying to sin in Christ and being raised to newness of life in Christ are fleshed out in the verses that follow. The results of dying with Christ are fleshed out in verses 6 and 7, where he writes this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then the results of being raised with Christ are fleshed out in verses 8 through 10, where he writes this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So there's the overview. Now let's take a closer look first with the results of dying with Christ. That's verses 6 and 7. Look at how verse 6 begins. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him, or we could even translate it, the old man has been crucified with him. What does that mean? Well, it it basically means that who we were in Adam before our conversion is not who we are now in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Behold, if anyone is in Christ... He or she is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, that doesn't mean that when you came to faith in Christ that part of the old man was crucified, but part of the old man survived, and that's why you have so much problems. Now, that's not what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching that the whole of the old man has been crucified with Christ. We'll talk about your problem with remaining sin in a moment. But who you were in Adam, there's been a death, a death to the whole man. And you are now a new creature in Jesus Christ. You're to reckon with that reality all the time. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, obviously, we have an ongoing royal battle with sin, verses 11 through 14 assumes that Christians are going to have a sin problem, that they're going to have to fight it to the day they die. That's part of fighting the good fight of faith. There is a battle with remaining sin, to be sure. But here is the point that I need to impress upon you, that moving from being in Adam to being in Christ Well, that movement didn't happen without the regenerating work of the Spirit and the Spirit's entrance into your life. And the Spirit of God came into the heart, into the very citadel of the heart. And that meant that sin was driven out of the citadel of the heart, as it were, in my word picture, and driven into the countryside of the heart where it carries out its guerrilla warfare. That's basically a biblical word picture of what has happened. Sin is still present, but sin is not enthroned. Something dramatic has happened. Augustine, St. Augustine understood what Paul was talking about here. You know, he had been a playboy before his conversion. His mother, Monica, was a Christian woman who had been praying earnestly for him. I believe he was converted three days before she died. And there was a a well-known preacher in the area that Augustine loved to go hear preach, but though he knew what God was commanding him to do, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ, the fact is he was a sex addict and he, he loved his sin too much to give it up. But then it happened. He was genuinely converted. And when we get to Romans 13, we'll focus on the text that God used to bring Augustine into the kingdom of God. But what happened to the man uh, was rather dramatic. Uh, And he gave expression to this one day shortly after his conversion. One of his former mistresses recognized him in the marketplace and ran after him saying, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And Augustine cried out, I know, but it's no longer me. He understood what Paul is teaching here. You know, that, what, what Paul is teaching here in Romans 6 is best illustrated by the, the ceremony of baptism and what it uh, symbolically depicts. 
In Christian baptism, we have both a funeral and we have the passing out of cigars because a new birth is being celebrated. Both of those things are symbolized by Christian baptism. A preacher by the name of McDonald writes, There is a sense in which a believer attends the funeral of his old self when he is baptized. As he goes under the water, he is saying, All that I was as a sinful son of Adam was put to death at the cross. As he comes up out of the water, he is saying, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, what is the result flowing from the old man being crucified in Christ? Well, Paul goes on to mention two things in the remainder of verse 6, so let me read the whole of the verse. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Now, listen to this result. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, now the purpose, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, what does Paul mean by referring to the body as the body of sin? Before I positively give the teaching of what he means, let me deal with the negative of what he doesn't mean. He is not suggesting at all that the human body is sinful or evil. The Gnostic heresy that John deals with in 1 John or the incipient Gnosticism that Paul deals with in Colossians reflected pagan Greek philosophy that taught that the material world was evil and that included the body. But you know, you don't have to read but the first chapter of the Bible that belies that. I mean, God made the material world and he declared it very good. And that material world included the bodies of Adam and Eve. And it was very good. And I remind you that the Son of God in the incarnation, that the Word became flesh. He took to himself both a rational soul and a physical body. And he took that to himself to redeem us, both body and soul. And, and the day is coming that, when, that every believer will be saved to sin no more and fully redeemed will have a body like unto the glorified body of Christ himself. And that's a very substantial body, a physical body, a glorified body. The Bible does not teach that the body is sinful. But the members of the body can and are used as instruments for sin. Think about how the smallest part of the body can be used in the service of sin. Think about the tongue. Just think about how the tongue can be abused. And think about... You know, in an age of social media, you don't have to look very long for evidence of the domineering influence of sin over the human tongue. I'm not going to recommend that you do this, but um, this past week I watched a clip on YouTube that uh, momentarily played something from a podcast of a man who used to have his own television show now he has his own podcast. And in that podcast, he went through all the names of every conservative justice on the Supreme Court, and he literally damned them all to hell. And I thought, oh, what mischief, what mischief the tongue can do, what service to sin the tongue can render, what evil takes place as, as the body and the instruments of the body, the, the body as a whole is 
is dominated by sin and renders such terrible service to sin. What does Paul mean by referring to the body as the body of sin? Not at all that the human body is sinful or evil. What he means by the body of sin is the body dominated by sin. Douglas Moo explains, the result is that the body of sin, that is, our bodies as dominated by sin, might be rendered powerless. What Paul is saying is that our identification with Christ means we are no longer dominated by sin. The purpose is that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Since sin's power over us has been broken, we should reflect that new freedom in the way we live. Sin should no longer characterize us. Now, verse 7 backs up with what Paul is teaching in verse 6 about ending sin's enslavement and bondage. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Paul's point here is that there is a new relationship to sin when you go from being in Adam to being in Christ. You have been united with Christ in his death. A death has occurred in your relationship to sin in that while sin is still around, sin is no longer your master. You are dead to sin as a master. You have a new master now. God is your master. Paul delighted in calling himself the bondservant of Jesus Christ. That's true of every Christian. Now, sin is still around, and sin still acts like a tyrant. It comes around with its hands on its hips, and it barks out its orders, and acts as if nothing has changed. But sin no longer has dominion over the Christian. And we are to reckon with this reality, says Paul, as he goes on in this passage. So we've considered the results of dying with Christ, verses 6 and 7. And then the results of being raised with Christ. Look at uh, verse 8. Verses 8 through 10 deal with that. Verse 8, he writes, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Living with Christ follows dying with Christ. Back to the baptism ceremony of verses 3 and 4. The preacher lifts that person ceremonially drowned in the baptism event out of the water as reflecting that this person is a new creature in Jesus Christ with new spiritual life. But he or she doesn't have it all. Uh, Paul said in verse 4 that we walk in newness of life. Verse 5, he used a future tense verb to caution us against any idea of perfectionism in this life. And he uses the future tense in verse 8 again. He's guarding what I would call against an overrealized eschatology. Or to put it more simply, he is steering us away from the canyon of perfectionism and any idea that you can get to perfection in this life. Every Christian in this room will be perfect, but it's not going to be in this life. You've got to go to heaven for that. Uh, Paul is steering us away from an overrealized eschatology in our passage. Eternal life is literally the life of the age to come. It's broken into this present evil age and into true Christian experience, but it's only going to break into the world and into Christian experience in all of its fullness, body and soul, at the second advent. Now, why can we be assured of this? 
Look at verses 9 and 10. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Sin and death, they go together like two co-regents that rule over fallen humanity. When we were talking about original sin in, in Romans 5.12, we noted that Adam opened the door to sin for the human race in the fall, and that in turn opened the door to death, for the wages of sin is death, says the Bible. That's what Adam did. But the claims that sin and death had upon Christ are night and day different than the claims upon you and me. We were under the dominion of sin as the slaves of sin and thus subject to death. Christ's exposure to the claims of sin and death was as our champion, as the sinless savior of his own volition, took in upon his own body the sins of a great multitude and of all who believe at the cross and extinguished all the claims of sin and death. He's the champion, and he has vanquished both sin and death on the cross. Now Paul goes on to link the second Adam in verses 9 and 10 to his people united to him by faith in verse 11, where he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. As we saw last week, we have in verses 9 through 11 an explanation of the language of verse 2. In Romans 6, 2, Paul had explained why it was unthinkable for a true believer to plunge into a life of sin that grace might abound. He wrote at the end of the verse, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, union with Christ who died to sin on the cross makes it impossible for a true believer to live as an antinomian. And when I say that, I'm not suggesting that a Christian can't backslide because Christians can and have, backs, have been guilty of backsliding. Nor am I suggesting that a true Christian can't fall into egregious sin, scandalous sin that injures um, his own conscience and his testimony and does great damage and injury to the cause of Christ in the world. I'm not suggesting that, that Christians can't do that. I mean, after all, we, we, we know that that can happen. I mean, we've got our Bible, right? I mean, Peter was a man of God, and yet he denied his Lord three times. And, or you think about David and his sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. And, and yet there is a big difference between David and Peter and the man of this world. And I would describe the difference this way. When someone is a true believer, they may fall into the mud, but they will not be happy and content there, right? I mean, they will be miserable and unhappy. God will give them no peace in that condition. And that itself is a mercy of God. I, I look at it this way. The, the man of this world can can indulge himself in sin and be like a sow in the mud, quite content about it. But the Christian who falls into sin, he's like 
that man with his best clothes on who falls into the mud, and he's most distressed about it. And by the grace of God, he will arise, and he will seek cleansing, and there will be uh, the, the restoration of God's grace. Christ did not just die for our sins to deal with the guilt of our sin. Christ died to sin in order to deliver us from the enslavement to sin and ultimately, brothers and sisters, to deliver us from the very practice and presence of it in the endless reaches of the age to come. Now, I have very little time left, and I do want to very briefly, secondly, consider the facts applied to the Christian life. That's a lot of real estate, verses 11 through 14. I only have time for verse 11 and not even for sufficient time to go into verse 11 with any depth. We'll come back to it next week. But I do want to touch on this very important truth in verse 11. Would you look there with me? Here we have the facts applied to the Christian life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, this exhortation to consider or reckon is the first exhortation in Paul's letter to the Romans. There's going to be many more exhortations to follow, many more commands, imperatives to follow. But I want you to think about this. We have gone deep into Romans before we get our first command. We're deep already into chapter 6 before God gives us the first command. Well, what have we been given to this point? Well, we have been given doctrine. We've been given teaching. We've been given instruction. And isn't that instructive? Now, we haven't had a command until we get to verse 11 of chapter 6. I mean, this is something that we American Christians ought to consider. Our land is an impatient land. I mean, we invented fast food, which is really lousy food, but, but it is fast. Americans are an impatient lot. We want quick fixes. We desire immediate how-to programs for everything. We major, we think, in the practical but when it comes to living the Christian life, what is first laid down in the Scripture is doctrine. And only when that foundation has been laid do you get exhortation. If I can put it in the language of the English major, the indicatives always come before the imperatives. The gospel facts always come first. And building on those facts comes the commands. That's the order of our God. Now, the indicative of Romans 6 is vital faith union that every believer has with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Doctrine obviously matters. It's foundational. It's foundational to living the Christian life. James Boyce sums up Paul's concern in verse 11 by saying this, What Paul principally wanted his readers to understand here is what theologians call the mystical union of believers with Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of union is this mystical union? Well, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, the kind of 
preposition that we would use to describe tools in a toolbox. The tools are in the toolbox, but Paul doesn't mean that. The New Testament doesn't mean that when it talks about union with Christ. We're not like tools in the toolbox. The union that the Bible has in mind is an organic, life-giving union. Paul elsewhere will describe the Christian church corporately as the body of Christ, and Christ the head of the body. That's a life-giving, life-communicating connection. You can't live without your head. That's a life-giving, life-connection, that union with Jesus Christ. Or think about Jesus. He borrows from the world of botany, the world of life, when he talks about union. He talks about himself as the vine, and we are the branches. This is how he put it in John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now this union imparts real spiritual fruit. Could language be clearer? It's an organic union. It's a life-imparting union. It's a Union that makes a distinction, a radical distinction between someone in Adam and someone who is now in Christ. Yes, they've got a sin problem. They have to fight that battle. But, oh, there's a vital union with Christ, and there's the indwelling presence of the Spirit. That's big stuff. This union as Jesus points out, will impart real spiritual fruit. Now even this first exhortation in verse 11 calls us constantly to think through our identity. We're going to consider what Paul means by the word consider next time because there's a lot of theological freight in that word. We'll come back to it next time. But for now, let me simply point out that that word is calling us to deal with reality, the reality of being in Christ and what that means in terms of changing your relationship to sin and changing your relationship to God. When a death occurs, old relationships are severed. Um, Pastor Pizzino is no longer Julie Pizzino's husband. Death has severed that relationship. When you died with Christ, your relationship to sin was severed. Sin is no longer your master. You're dead to sin as your master. You still have a problem with sin. It's still in the countryside of your heart doing its guerrilla warfare thing, and you've got to fight it. But that relationship where sin has dominion over you, that's been severed. You're dead to sin as a master. You're alive to God, and you've got a gracious master now, in Jesus Christ. And so these are the radical things that we are to reckon with. You're not as alive as you're going to be in heaven, but nevertheless you are alive. You are in Christ. You have the Spirit. That's not a small thing. You know, Satan in his spiritual warfare does everything and he, he can to confuse you about your spiritual identity. We're going to sing a hymn uh, at the end of the service uh, today in Christ alone. I hope you'll take that hymn home and, and ponder the words in the coming week. Satan is always trying to confuse Christian people about your identity and the world that is 
under the influence of the evil one is not going to help you think about your identity in Christ. The world is offended that you do not adopt its creed of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man. The world's offended by the idea that the whole world of natural-born sinners is hanging from Adam's belt, but by God's grace, through faith in Christ, the Christian now hangs from the belt of Christ. That's offensive to the world. The world's not going to help you think biblically about your identity. The world is going to do the devil's work in that respect. Satan is constantly attacking you and attacking you even through the world. Not to think biblically of yourselves, but you've got the Spirit's book. And to this teaching, you must return again and again. How would you identify yourself? Now, maybe somebody would say, well, I'm a Christian. And if you identify yourself in that way, that's perfectly acceptable. I don't want to come down on it but I don't think it's particularly helpful. I mean, most of America self-identifies as Christian. And did you know that in the New Testament, the word Christian only appears three times? It's not big on the Spirit's list of how you ought to think of yourself. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just not the way that the Spirit continually is calling us to think of ourselves. Did you know that in the letters of Paul alone, and that's only, that's 13 letters, there's 27 books in the New Testament. In the 13 letters of Paul, 164 times you are identified as being in Christ or in him or in the Lord. That preposition in that relates the believer to Christ is in. Union with Christ, union with Christ, union with Christ. That's your identity. You're united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Again and again. And by the way, Paul isn't alone in emphasizing union with Christ. They all emphasize it, all the gospel writers. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to you. It defines who you are, and at the same time, it tells you how much Christ has done for you. Union with Christ, it's ground zero when it comes to your sanctification and living the Christian life. Reckon with this reality always. Preach it to yourself daily. This is the reality of God's wonderful grace to you in Jesus Christ. Union with Christ. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Amen. Father, we thank you for the blessed truth and reality in Christian experience of union with Christ. And we ask your gracious aid to stir the memories of your people as to our identity and, and to remember again and again what Christ has done for us. And we ask that as we come to the table of the Lord in a moment that we would be captivated afresh by the Christ who lived for us and the Christ who died for us. Work in our hearts, we pray it, by your Holy Spirit, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.